Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Joel. Hi, Lauren. I'm, um, again, we recorded this episode at the same time as the last episode, but I'm... You're really ruining the mystery. I know. I'm sorry. I'm schwitzing right now. I'm sh- The backs of my knees are sweating, which is very unladylike. I'm dropping my microphone, so it's all right. We're trying so, to we're trying to record in a cooler space in the house, and I don't know how successful we're being. <laughs> Besides, we could try it like inside of the refrigerator at some point, but yeah, I mean it's Rochester; it's only summer for like two weeks. Yeah, exactly. So it's fine. So we just wait it out. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of being ladylike, mm. that's a great transition. Oh, flawless. Yeah. I wish I had come up with it. (laughs) Um, Because this week we're talking about perhaps one of the most graceful (gasps) of all topics. Ballet. This episode is called Hold Me Closer, Tiny Dancer. That's very good. You know it. Yeah. All right. Ready? Yes. Ballet is a French word with its origin from the Italian balletto, mm. a oh, diminutive of ballo, meaning dance, which comes from the Latin ballo, meaning to dance, which actually comes from the Greek balizzo, oh to dance or to jump about. So okay. this word has been around for a long time. The word came into English usage from the French around 1630. So ballet is both the type of performance dance and also the term for a work of choreography and music for a production. So oh. ballet is the dance or a ballet is the performance. Okay. Too. So ballet originated in the Italian Renaissance courts of the 15th and 16th centuries. Under Catherine de' Medici's influence as queen, it spread to France. The dancers in these early court ballets were mostly noble amateurs and at first mostly men. Hmm. So ornamented costumes were meant to impress viewers, but they restricted performers' freedom of movement. And we'll talk about costumes in a bit. Oh, wow. yeah. um, French court ballet reached its height under the reign of King Louis XIV, who founded the Académie Royale de Danse, or the for those who don't speak French, <laughs> the Royal Dance Academy, wow. uh, in 1661 to establish standards and certified dance instructors. In 1672, Louis XIV made Jean-Baptiste Lully the director of the Académie Royale de Musique at the Paris Opera, from which the first professional ballet company, the Paris Opera Ballet, arose. And by 1681, the first ballerinas took the stage following years of training at the Academy. Hmm. So there are several types of ballet dance which have evolved over time. Oh. So you have classical ballet, that's uh, based on traditional ballet technique and vocabulary. There are different styles that have emerged in different countries. So you'll have like what people consider like French ballet, Italian ballet, English ballet, and Russian ballet. Uh, several of the classical ballet styles are associated with specific training methods and are t- typically named after their creators. And we'll talk about them in a little bit. Ooh, okay. uh, romantic ballet was an artistic movement of classical ballet and several productions remain in the classical repertoire today. So uh, the romantic era was marked by the emergence of point work. Uh, the dominance of female dancers and longer flowy tutus that attempt to exemplify softness and a delicate aura. Oh my. This movement occurred during the early to mid 19th century, um, which is considered the romantic era and featured themes that emphasize intense emotion as a source of aesthetic experience. And the plots of many romantic ballets revolved around spirit women like sylphs uh, and ghosts um, who enslaved the hearts and senses of mortal men. Oh, that sounds right. As they should. Yeah, yeah. Um, neoclassical 
ballet is usually abstract. Um, there's not typically like a clear plot, maybe mm. not any costumes or scenery. Like cats. <laughs> <laughs> you were just waiting to bring that up. I, well, I heard no plot and I yeah. immediately thought, thought of, of cats. cats. Yeah, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So neoclassical ballet music choice can be diverse and often includes music that is also considered neoclassical. Um, And another form, modern ballet, also emerged as an offshoot of this neoclassicism. And then last, you have contemporary ballet. So that's actually often performed barefoot. And um, contemporary ballet may include... (gasps) She's not speaking because she's in a box. You're talking about mine. I'm talking about mine. This is terrible for an audio podcast. (laughs) But... Yeah, miming might be involved in contemporary ballet as well as acting. And um, they are usually set to music, um, typically orchestral, but occasionally vocal. Um, So it might be difficult to differentiate this contemporary ballet form from neoclassical or modern, um, you know, but if they're barefoot, it's It's probably a good sign. Yeah. Um, They're also very close to contemporary dance um, because a lot of the ideas of this come from like 20th century modern dance. So like floor work and, you know, Mm -hmm. specific movements they do with their legs. But the main distinction is that ballet technique is essential to perform a contemporary ballet. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. The positions in ballet. Okay. All right. There are two basic positions of the arms. So we, sorry, first we have to talk. They... There are specific things with your arms, with your body, and your feet. Okay. Okay. So with the arms, um, there's two basic positions. In one, the dancers... And, you know, play along with me, guys. Uh, I'm going to play along. When I tell you what to do with your body, get into that position. But if you're driving, please Please be careful. Yes. Disclaimer. Um, So in the first, the dancer keeps the fingers of both arms almost touching to form an oval or round shape, either near your hips at navel level or raised above your head. So like you're you're holding a, a, a yoga ball. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in front of you or, or above, above you, you or below. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in the other movement, arms are extended to the sides with the elbow slightly bent. Okay. So just like like you're greeting the day. Yeah. Like, hey, how you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so some technical methods of ballet instruction also have additional core arm movements, which they call the port de bras. P-O-R-T-D-E-B-R-A-S. Pour de bras Pour de means bras. how you carry your arms. Okay. Modern day classical ballet employs five positions of the feet. So okay. they're known as like the numbered positions. So your first, second, third, fourth, and fifth position. So in first position, your heels are together and your toes go outward. Like just kind of just away like, from you. Not okay. necessarily directly to the sides, but out from you. Okay. In second, the feet point in opposite directions with heels placed approximately 12 inches apart. Okay. So basically like, like you're a starfish. And your feet are pointing Pointed away from yes. each other. Yeah. In the third position, one foot is placed in front of the other so that the heel of the front foot is near the arch. So it's kind of like a contra pasto position. Oh, okay. Like a T, like you're making a T with your feet. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. In the fourth position, they um, they do differentiate that there are two different types of fourth position. There's open and closed. So in both cases, one foot is placed about uh, 12 inches in front of the other. In an open fourth position, the heels are aligned. But in closed fourth position, the heel of the front foot is aligned with the toe of the back foot. And in fifth position, um, you should form two parallel lines with your feet. So the heel of the front foot should be in contact with the big toe of the other. And the heel of the back foot should be in contact with the last toe of the front foot. So those are your five positions for your feet. 
Um, but positions of the body, some classical ballet training systems employ standardized layouts on a stage to define reference locations at the corners of a stage. So the corners and midpoints of a stage square or rectangle are numbered. So mm. maybe depending on the style of dance you're doing, like that left front corner might be one, that right uh, front corner might be two. And so they might tell you which so it's like your a, body should be facing when you do these movements. I see. So it's like a standardized kind of grid that you're on depending yes. on what style of ballet you mm-hmm. are. So if some, so it's a shorthand if someone's like, all right, I need you in quadrant three. Yeah, basically. Then you know. Yeah. Okay. So with your body, the general positions are crossé, which is crossed, à la quatrième, which is to the fourth. So if that's the part of the stage. Efforcé mm-hmm. um, is shaded. À la seconde is to the second, meaning like the second part of that stage. Écarté is thrown wide apart or separated. Like a starfish. Yes. Yes. <laughs> finally. Yeah, finally. I get the starfish thing in. And épaulé means shouldered. Um, okay. Some of the schools of teaching have more and have split off some more of these positions into front, which they call devant, and back, which is derrière also. Some other important ballet vocabulary. Un danseur is a male ballet dancer okay. and a danseuse is a female ballet dancer. Okay. The corps de ballet is the ensemble of a ballet company, especially the ensemble apart from the featured dancers. Mm. A ballerina is a principal female ballet dancer. So many people kind of use this term incorrectly, um, using it to describe any kind of female ballet student or dancer, okay. but no. Ballerina was once a rank given only to the most exceptional female soloists okay. in a company. So really, if you're talking about someone who dances ballet, they're probably a danseur or a danseuse. You shouldn't necessarily just call them a ballerina. So ballerina is actually a an elevated position. It was a rank. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, and a ballerino was the star male ballet performer of the company. Hmm. You don't hear a lot about those guys. No, not a lot of ballerinos <laughs> out there. <laughs> Uh, the prima ballerina was the second highest title that could be awarded to a ballerina. So you were the like second? part of the, you were part of the ensemble. Okay. You were a dancer. Then you could have been a ballerina. Then you were the prima ballerina. But the highest honor is the prima ballerina assulata, the Ooh. title awarded to the most notable of female ballet dancers, which is a rare honor traditionally reserved only for the most exceptional dancers of their generation. Top honors for male dancers were the premier danseur noble, which is the highest, followed by a premier danseur. Um, some of those terms are now outdated, though. So starting from the top, some of the most common rankings today in English are principal dancer, then soloist, demi-soloist, corps de ballet, and then apprentice. Okay. A ballet is a ballet fan or enthusiast. Oh, it's a good word. Um, and then some more things without, about positioning in, in ballet. An arabesque is a position on one leg with the other leg raised behind the body and extended in a straight line. Oh, okay. That's so an like, arabesque. Like, um, yeah, like you, your, one your leg, legs are at a right angle. Yes, basically. Mm-hmm. A turnout is where a dancer turns his or her feet or legs out from the hip joints to a 90 degree position. So kind of like a starfish. So kind of like a starfish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Assemblé is lifting off the floor on one leg and landing on two. It's called that because the legs assemble at the same time when they get to the floor and return to fifth position. Oh, that sounds painful. (laughs) Jump on one leg, land on two. Uh, A grand jeté is a big jump from one foot to the other in which the working leg is brushed into the air and appears to have been thrown. So like a jeté is a jump. Sure. A grand jeté is like you're really 
You're really hauling yourself yes. up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a plie, it means bent or bending. Um, that is the, that's the bending of the knees. So mm-hmm. you go down in a plie. A pirouette is a rotation or a spin. Um, it's typically a complete turn of the body on one foot, either on point, which is on your toes, or demi point, which is also called half point. A fouette literally means whipped. Um, it refers to a move where a quick pivot on the supporting leg changes the orientation of the body in the working leg. So it's like, you're quickly kind of whipping your body around on stage. Oh <laughs> yep. Uh, shen are a series of quick 360 degree turns that alternate the feet while traveling along in a straight line or a circular path. So when you're on stage, um, each foot performs a half turn with feet held in tight first position while on point or dummy point. So you're quickly moving across the stage, kind of like, what's that thing we used to do in body chisel that I could never get right? <laughs> I don't know the grapevine or whatever oh yeah 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 it was the grapevine <laughs> they would make us do the grapevine so think of that but on ballet shoes oh okay, okay. very quickly <laughs> tight tightly um tour en l'air is a turn in the air that's usually a male dancer's steps um although female dancers may do them depending on the choreography and a step a tear means touching the floor so on on the ground a grand pas is a suite of individual dances that serves as a showpiece for lead dancers, um, and in some cases, the corps de ballet. It is often regarded as the piece de resistance of a ballet. A pas de deux, you've heard that term before, it's a dance for two. Um, ballon, this is very important um, in, the, in ballet. A ballon is showing lightness of movement in leaps and jumps. So you need to have that quality to be a, to be a good ballet dancer. I see. As you have this ballon. So you show you, lightness in your, you, in your steps. You lift off in your jumps like you have no bones, bird yes. bones. You're not... You're not, <laughs> not like us. I just imagine myself like... <laughs> <laughs> Leaping. <laughs> yep. <laughs> just hurling myself across the stage. Yeah. You're not making grunts as you're throwing all and landing. muscle yeah. and bone of mm-hmm. yourself up into the air. Yep. <laughs> All right, good to know. Um, adagio means slowly or at ease. Um, that's a succession of soft, slow, lyrical, and continuous movements on the stage. So adagio creates the illusion that the positions flow from one into another. Okay. And then allegro, which um, comes from Italian meaning happy. Um, so allegro in ballet involves fast and dynamic movements, usually jumping steps and sequences. So mm. those are just a few terms that you'll see bandied about when you are reading about ballet. Onto a fun part of it is costumes. Oh, yeah. So the roots of ballet go back to the Renaissance in France and Italy when, again, court wear was the beginning of ballet costumes. So ballet costumes had been around since the early 15th century. Uh, Cotton and silk were mixed with flax. They were woven into semi-transparent gauze to create exquisite ballet costumes. And during the 17th century, different types of fabric and designs were used to make costumes more spectacular and eye-catching. Women began to dance ballet in 1682, uh, 20 years after King Louis XIV of France ordered the founding of the Royal Academy of Dance. And at that time, the standard women's ballet shoe had heels because that's the best thing to dance in isn't it so court dress still remained for women during this century um silk satins and fabrics embroidered with real gold and precious stones increased the level of spectacular decoration associated with ballet costumes women's costumes also consisted of heavy garments and knee-long skirts which made it difficult for them to create much movement and gestures (laughs) 
During the 18th century, though, stage costumes were still very similar to court wear, but they progressed over time, mostly due to the French dancer and ballet master Jean-Georges Novaire, who wrote the book Lettres sur la danse et le ballet in 1760. That's letters on dance and ballet. Um, Novaire altered the emphasis in a production away from the costumes toward the physical movements and emotions of the dancers. Oh, so, sure, yeah. During this era, skirts were raised a few inches off the ground. Um, so flowers, flounces, ribbons, and lace emphasized this opulent feminine style, and they introduced more soft and pastel tones. Mm-hmm. So you can see where this is going. Absolutely. Um, so mer- mid-18th century dancer Marie Carnago of the Paris Opera Ballet was the first to wear a non-heeled shoe doing mm. ballet. After the French Revolution, heels were completely eliminated from standard ballet shoes. And during the early 19th century, close-fitting body costumes, floral crowns, corsages, and jewels were used. So ideals of romanticism were reflected through the female movements as well as their Mm -hmm. um, attire. So costumes became much tighter as corsets started to come into use to show off the curves on a ballerina. And jewels and bedazzled costumes became much more popular. During the 20th century, ballet costumes transitioned back into the influence of Russian ballet. Mm-hmm. So ballerina skirts became knee-length tutus later on in order to show off their more precious, precise point work. And colors used on stage costumes also became much more vibrant. Yeah, uh, the Ballet Russe, mm-hmm. uh, when they toured uh, England and the United States, Paul, po- Paul Poiret uh, designed the costumes for some of it. And that became like a huge... Um, fashion movement this right. idea of like very soft flowing fabrics and like kind of cut close to the body that mm-hmm. was like so hot everybody wanted it very um, romantic so the ballet russe was very influential on fashion during that time period mm-hmm. yeah I knew you'd have something to say yeah, about yeah, that yeah. Well, well you know um, some of the equipment that used for ballet, uh, the footwear is usually a ballet shoe or also called a ballet slipper. So this is a lightweight shoe designed specifically for balling dancing. It may be made from soft leather, canvas, or satin and has flexible thin soles which traditionally do not reach all the way to the edges of the shoe. And traditionally women wear pink shoes and men wear white or black shoes. A modern development is the split sole, which provides greater flexibility and emphasizes the shape of the foot when pointed. So shoes are secured with the use of elastic, most often with a single band across the arch of the foot or with two bands across in an X shape at the top of the arch. There's also the other one, the point shoe. Mm -hmm. So that's worn by ballet dancers when performing point work. Uh, So point shoes are... um, Point shoes were conceived in response to the desire for dancers to appear weightless and sylph-like and have evolved to enable dancers to dance on point, which is on the tips of their toes, for extended periods of time. Um, I love this tidbit. So the first dancers to rise up on their toes didn't do so with their shoes. They did it with the help of an invention by Charles Didelot in 1795. His flying machine lifted dancers (gasps) upward, allowing them to stand on their toes before leaving the ground. So basically, they were like on strings and then then, then, the back of the house. They would just haul them up. So you would like, and now you're up on your toes. (laughs) Wow, that's great. So um, this lightness and ethereal quality was well received by audiences. And as a result, choreographers began to look for ways to incorporate more point work into their pieces. Of course, yeah. So as dance progressed into the 19th century, the emphasis on technical skill increased, as did the desire to dance on point without the aid of wires. And point shoes have two important structural features. There's the box, which is in the front end of the shoe. It encases and supports the dancer's toes. And the shank, which is a piece of rigid material that serves to stiffen the sole so as to provide support for the arch of the foot. Um, Professional dancers typically wear out point shoes much more quickly. A new pair might wear out in a single performance. Um, For example, in 2013, the New York City Ballet ordered... For 180 dancers, they ordered 8,500 pairs of point oh, shoes. Oh, my God. And um, FYI, Bill Nye, 
the okay. science guy, yeah. patented a new type of toe shoe for ballet dancers um, in this century uh, designed to better support dancers than previous shoes had. Oh my gosh. You know, I had no idea how ballet dancers went on point. I thought their shoe was like, like I thought it was like some sort of insert where they could like slide their oh. toes into and it supported the entire foot. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I actually this uh, I just realized this a couple years ago because I was like oh I have Google now I can just Google (laughs) what is in the inside of Uh a ballet shoe and of course I like Google that and of course it's all the images and everything and it's just a toe box it's just a box sometimes Uh, it's wood yeah sometimes it's wood Um, but it doesn't protect you from like really messing up your feet no have you ever seen a ballet dancer's foot it's gnarly (laughs) Mama mia. And they know it. <laughs> oh, and they know it. I mean, they're never going to be able to wear like cute sandals yeah. ever again, which is certainly not like, you know, that isn't why they got into the business. Mm-hmm. But wow. That's why these women don't stay in the business yeah. for very long because it just ruins it, your joints. It, yeah. It really is. It really, really does a number on the body. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> the other piece of equipment. This is like all the, they were like, things you need for ballet. Shoes. Sure. Also, sometimes you use a bar, B-A-R-R-E. That Mm -hmm. is a stationary handle that provides support during various types of exercises. So like you'll see people like doing stretches on it or Mm -hmm. like they're holding on to it to keep their balance, make sure their position is right. And there's that like trend that came about Mm -hmm. in the 2000s that the the pure bar. Yeah, bar classes. You're going to get, you fit your fitness in just by like doing what the what the ballet dancers do sure yeah without actually ballet dancing you're just gonna you're just going squat and put your leg up on a bar doesn't make any sense i but you know i never tried those because no it seems enough for that boring it seems more boring than anything honestly yeah i'm gonna lift stuff up and put it down (laughs) so um there are um six widely used internationally recognized methods to teach or study ballet and i'll just go over those briefly the french school which is the basis of all ballet training so the french method is often characterized by technical precision fluidity and gracefulness and elegant clean lines for this style fast footwork is often utilized in order to give the impression that the performers are drifting lightly across the stage The Vaganova method, um, it's an internationally recognized and revered style of ballet training that emerged from Russian ballet, created by retired dancer Agrippina Vaganova. Oh, it's a great it's name. What a great name. Agrippina. <laughs> Agrippina so Vaganova. Good. She developed an extremely precise method of instruction in her book, Basic Principles of Russian Classical Dance in 1948, which tells when to teach technical components to students in their ballet careers, for how long to focus on it, and the right amount of focus at each stage of the student's career. So the method emphasizes the development of strength, flexibility, and endurance for the proper performance of ballet. She espoused the belief that equal importance should be placed on the arms and legs while performing performing ballet as this will bring harmony and greater expression to the body as a whole. The Cicchetti method, that's C-E-C-C-H-E-T-T-I, the Cicchetti method was developed by Enrico Cicchetti, an Italian ballet dancer and mime. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I forgot he was a mime. Uh, This method is one known internationally for its intense reliance on the understanding of anatomy as it relates to classical ballet. Oh, okay. So important components for this method is the emphasis of balance, elevations, poise, and strength. This method embraces the importance of recognizing that all parts of the body move together to create beautiful, graceful lines and cautions against thinking of ballet in terms of arms, legs, and neck and torso as separate parts. So this method is well known for its eight pour de bras. That's the different p- ways you can carry your arms mm-hmm. um, that are utilized in that method. 
the Bournonville method, a Danish method first devised by Auguste Bournonville. Um, He was heavily influenced by the early French ballet method due to his training with his father and other important French ballet masters. But the Bournonville method produces dancers who have beautiful ballon, which is, again, the illusion of imponderable lightness. The Royal Academy of Dance, or RAD, this is also known as the English style. So the goal of this method is to promote academic training in classical ballet throughout Great Britain. There are specific grade levels which a student must move through in order to complete training in this method. So in a way, it's kind of like um, getting your black belt in karate in this method. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the key principle behind this method of instruction is that basic ballet technique must be taught at a slow pace with difficulty progression often much slower than the rest of the methods. So the idea behind this is if a student is put in a large amount of effort into perfecting the basic steps, the technique learned in these steps allow a student to utilize harder ones at a much easier rate. Sure. That makes Makes perfect sense. sense, right? Yeah. And then finally, the Balanchine method, also known as the American style. This mm. was developed by George Balanchine at the New York City Ballet. And his method draws heavily on his own training as a dancer in Russia. The technique is known for the extreme speed throughout routines, emphasis on lines, and deep plies. Perhaps one of the most well-known differences of this style is the unorthodox positioning of the body. Uh, dancers of the style often have flexed hands and even feet and are placed in off-balance positions. Oh, okay. So mm. kind of mod. Very yeah. interesting. So now, speaking of Balanchine, we're going to cover some very famous ballet people. Please. Okay. Marius Petipa from 1818 to 1910. He was a French ballet dancer and choreographer known as one of the most influential ballet masters and choreographers in ballet history. Marius Petipa is noted for his long career as premier maître de ballet, the first ballet master of the St. Petersburg Imperial Theaters in Russia, making him ballet master and principal choreographer of the Imperial Ballet, today known as the Marinsky Ballet, a position that he held from 1871 until 1903. Petipa created over 50 ballets, some of which have survived in versions either faithful to, inspired by, or reconstructed from the original. All the full-length works and individual pieces which have survived in active performance are considered to be cornerstones of the ballet repertoire. Oh, sure, yeah. Sergei Diaghilev. 1872 to 1929. He was a Russian art critic and patron. He founded the Ballet Russe, from which many Uh, famous dancers and choreographers would arise. So like you kind of mentioned, the Ballet Russe were an itinerant ballet company based in Paris that performed between 1909 and 1929 throughout Europe and on tours to North and South America. The company never performed in Russia, where the revolution disrupted society. Uh, Diaghilev commissioned works from composers such as Igor Stravinsky, Claude Debussy, and Sergei Prokofiev, artists such as Vasily Kandinsky, Alexander Benoit, Pablo Picasso, and Henri Matisse, and costume designers Léon Basque and Coco Chanel. Mm-hmm. George Balanchine, as I mentioned. So he was alive from 1904 to 1983. He was a Russian-born, Georgian-American ballet choreographer, regarded as the foremost contemporary choreographer in the world of ballet. George Balanchine served as the artistic director and primary choreographer of the New York City Ballet, and he founded the School of American Ballet. He is famous for his signature neoclassical style. He was a choreographer known for his musicality, expressing music with dance, and he worked extensively with leading composers of his time, like Igor Stravinsky. Rudolf Nureyev, 
1938 to 1993, was a Soviet ballet and contemporary dancer and choreographer named Lord of the Dance, way before Michael Flatley. Uh, Nureyev is widely regarded as the greatest male ballet dancer of his generation. Oh my God, wow. Uh, Nureyev began his early career with the Marinsky Ballet in St. Petersburg. He defected from the Soviet Union to the West in 1961, despite KGB efforts to stop him. And this was the first defection of a Soviet artist during the Cold War, and it created an international sensation. Oh yeah. He went on to dance with the Royal Ballet in London and from 1983 to 1989 served as the director of the Paris Opera Ballet. Nureyev particularly revitalized the French School of Ballet and he renewed appreciation for this style. And in fact, the French School is now sometimes referred to as the Nureyev School. Oh, ooh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, next, Anna Pavlova, um, 1881 to 1931. She was a Russian prima ballerina of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. She was a principal artist of Imperial Russian Ballet and the Ballet Russe of Sergei Diaghilev. Uh, Pavlova is most recognized for her creation of the role of the dying swan and with her own company became the first ballerina to tour around the world. Also, everything I read about her just said that she had weak ankles. They were like, <laughs> oh, yes, this very famous ballerina. I mean, she had weak ankles, but OK. <laughs> I mean, I guess she was famous, but uh, uh, bird bones, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Snap those things off so quick. Like a couple of pretzel sticks. Yikos. Oh. <laughs> um. Uh, another fellow countryman, uh, Vaslav Nijinsky, 1889 mm. to 1950. So he was the Polish-Russian ballet dancer and choreographer cited as the greatest male dancer of the early 20th century. He could dance on point, a rare skill among male dancers at the time. Wow. And he was admired for his seemingly gravity-defying leaps. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about Nijinsky in a bit. Ooh, okay. Uh, Margot Fontaine, um, 1919 to 1991. Her stage name... Um, was Margot Fontaine. Her real name was Margaret Evelyn de Arias. She was an English ballerina who spent her entire career as a dancer with the Royal Ballet, eventually being appointed prima ballerina Asulatara. Asulatara. Asulata. What? Prima ballerina Asulata. What? This, <laughs> this Italian word is getting me. Prima ballerina Asulata. 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 There you go. And I so you have to I have to pinch my fingers yeah, like I'm got, describing you a nice parmigiano reggiano. <laughs> a, nice, a delicious meatball. That's why you got to pinch your a fingers. A prima ballerina assolata. There you go. See, I have to pinch my, my fingers so that the, the French your, comes out of my tiny mouth. <laughs> and I have to do a caricature of someone from you. The Godfather. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what? Whatever works, guys. We don't care. So Marga Fontaine was partners with Rudolf Nureyev and they were noted from their classical performances from 1961 to 1979 when she was 60 years old. What? She was 60 years old. What? Still dancing. Oh my God. Still dancing. Uh, she retired in 1979, 45 years after becoming the Royal Ballet's prima ballerina. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. She so, must have hurt all over. So like Nureyev was much younger than she was. Yeah. Well, how much? How much, much? He was probably like 20 years younger than she was. Okay. So like whenever he defected from the Soviet Union and like went to go dance in the West. Yeah. And she was his partner. She was like 20 years older than him. And so it was kind of like she was keeping up with this young guy who was like one of the best dancers of the generation. They were partners. I don't think they like did it though. Because no. Yeah. I don't see her doing A lot of these male, male ballet dancers, especially the ones that died in the 20th century, died of like AIDS. Oh, yeah, that's so rough. On a lighter note, I guess, 
Robert Joffrey, 1930 to 1988. Um, he was an American dancer, choreographer, and co-founder of the Joffrey Ballet, which is known for its highly imaginative modern ballets. Um, so his name at birth was Enver Bey Abdullah Jaffa Khan, but he wow. like changed it. Um, he was born in Seattle, Washington, to a father from Afghanistan and a mother from Italy. Um, he danced and studied a combo of ballet and modern dance. And the Joffrey Ballet, based in Chicago, is one of the world's premier dance companies. The Joffrey Ballet was the first dance company to perform at the White House at Jackie Kennedy's invitation, the first to appear on American television, the oh, first wow. to appear on the cover of Time magazine, and the first company to have had a major motion picture based on it, which was Robert Altman's The Company. Oh, hey, mm-hmm. that's cool. All right. Another guy you've actually heard of. Yeah. Mikhail Baryshnikov. Oh, Baryshnikov. Okay. White Knights. Yeah. yeah. So um, he was born in 1948, still alive. Um, so he's a Soviet-born Russian and American dancer, choreographer, and actor. He defected to Canada in 1974 for more opportunities in Western dance. He joined the New York City Ballet as a principal dancer to learn George Balanchine's style of movement, and he then danced with the American Ballet Theater, where he became the artistic director later. In 1977, he received a nomination for the Best Supporting Actor Oscar and a Golden Globe nomination for his work as Yuri Kopaikin, a famous Russian womanizing ballet dancer in the film The Turning Point. Ooh. He also had a significant role in the last season of the television series Sex in the City as Carrie's boyfriend Alexander Prudrovsky. Also, just wasted, just completely <laughs> wasted because he. Did, I don't think he danced a step. Oh, pro- no! I think he was just like a Russian artist. Yeah, he was just a Russian Sex artist. City. It's yeah. like, I'm sorry. I'm here to see Barishnikov do Barishnikov. Yeah, you know what I mean. Sorry. I think in the Turning Point, he does. I think I saw this on YouTube. I didn't see the movie. Of course, I didn't. Um, sorry, triviality guys. But <laughs> he does like. Uh, a spin he does a pirouette he does like on one like i guess turn like one mm-hmm. like swipe he does like 18 turns in a row and just keeps like from his own momentum just keeps turning it's really amazing so magical oh beautiful dancer another tidbit about him hmm. so uh, Bershnikov has a daughter named Alexandra or Shura Bershnikova, born in 1981, from his relationship with actress Jessica Lang. Wait, wait, say that again? He has a daughter with Jessica Lang. He has a daughter with Jessica Lang? Yeah. I didn't even know that they even crossed paths right. at any point. Well, good for... She must be... Good for be- all of them. She must be beautiful. Oh, I'm sure. And elegant? Oh, oh. <laughs> And another ballet dancer you should know, Misty Copeland. Oh, my God, yes. Born in 1982, obviously. Obviously. Still reigning. Um, so Amer- she's an American ballet dancer for the American Ballet Theater in New York City. Um, she was the first African-American woman to be promoted to principal dancer in the company's 75-year history. Which is... So insane. Yeah. So insane. But yeah. Uh, Copeland was considered a prodigy who rose to stardom despite not even starting ballet until age 13. Which is crazy. It just goes to prove maybe we're really good at something. Maybe we just I'm haven't a really good dance ballet dancer and, and I've just, just never tried, tried it. it. There was a Nike ad like just after she became principal ballerina that they had her like talking about, you know, like, mm, you know, I don't know, strength, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But there is an opening shot of in slow motion. She's in first position and she just slowly rises mm-hmm. up into toe points <gasps> and the muscles in her legs. I actually like my entire like core just clenched up to the back of my neck <gasps> because it's so the amount of muscle control is 
mind boggling to me. Right. It's incredible. I yeah. watched it. I watched that first like three second thing like Oof. four times. It's incredible. She's amazing. She's amazing. Last, I would like to talk to you about some famous ballets. Please. Okay. First, Sleeping Beauty. Sure. Easy. Based on Charles Perrault's Le Belle au Bois Dormant or The Beauty Sleeping in the Wood or Sleeping Beauty. The story revolves around Princess Aurora who's been cursed to prick her finger on a spinning wheel and Aurora falls into a deep slumber lasting no less than 100 years but fortunately the story has a happy ending when the princess gets wakened by a prince's kiss. The ballet ends with them marrying each other and living happily ever after with some of the most beautiful musical numbers. The music for this is by Tchaikovsky and oh. it was choreographed by Marius Petipa. Petipa. Okay. The Nutcracker. Again, sure. we've all heard of this. Based on the story of The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, written by E.T.A. Hoffman. It premiered at St. Petersburg in 1892 and has since become one of the most loved ballets of all time. So the story revolves around a young, innocent girl named Clara who has been shrunk to the size of a mouse. Uh-oh. And together, Clara and her beloved Nutcracker fight the evil Mouse King along with the help of their other toy friends. The Nutcracker is later transformed into a handsome prince and later he sets off to the kingdom of Sugar Plum Fairy where he's oh. destined to rule forever. So the two-act ballet is known widely for its beautiful composition and enchanting performances always at Christmas time oh yeah um, and the music again by Tchaikovsky and choreographed by Marius Patipa uh, Rochester City Ballet they always do um, they always do the Nutcracker every Christmas and the local like children ballet dancers yeah. get to be cast as That's like great. sugar plum fairies and stuff it's, it's wonderful um, growing up my friend um, Emily got to go do that with the Pittsburgh Ballet oh that's fun um also, Swan Lake. Oh, sure. You know this. First premiered in Moscow, Russia in 1877 and was drastically reworked in 1895. While the ballet initially received harsh criticism, it has since become one of the most beloved ballets of all time. So the story revolves around Princess Odette, who has been cursed to become a swan by the despicable Von Rothbart. And while the princess remains a swan throughout the day, she transforms into her human self at night. The story continues as Prince Siegfried witnesses her beautiful transformation and is determined to marry the princess. Who do you think did the music? Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky. Yes. Who do you think did the choreography? Petipa. Mary is Petipa. Yes. All right. Now, maybe getting into ones we might not know the names of. Okay. So, La Sylphide. It is one of the most first romantic ballets. So, there were two versions of this. The original was choreographed by Filippo Taglioni in 1831. You see, I did the thing. Just like the quickest finger pinch. Uh, and a second version was choreographed by Auguste Bournonville in 1836. So Bournonville's version is the only one known to have survived and is one of the old, world's oldest surviving ballets. So James, a young and engaged Scotman, starts having visions of a beautiful forest fairy called a sylph. Meanwhile, an old witch tells his bride-to-be Effie that her fiancé is in love with someone else and that oh. she will marry his best friend, Gurn. I, could, I had to see if this said gum or gurn, but it's gurn. <laughs> it's gurn. Oh no, Effie! Not, no, no, Effie, Effie, you're gonna go marry gurn. <laughs> so furious, James sends the witch away, and at the commencement of the wedding, the sylph appears back to James <gasps> and snatches the ring. So enchanted, he abandons the ceremony to chase after the spirit into the woods where he stumbles upon the old witch. <gasps> so she gives him a scarf that will prevent the sylph from flying away. Okay? Okay. Because so he's like, I gotta go get this ring. Oh, sure. So okay, yeah, he, yeah. he catches the sylph. When the beautiful sylph returns, he wraps the scarf around her and it causes her wings to fall away and then she dies. Um, wow. Talk yeah. about the, the punishment not matching the yeah, crime. Yeah, right? Also, what did she do? Yeah. So... Then heartbroken, he's like, well, this beautiful self is died. And then he gets to watch Effie marry Gurn. 
seu filho. <laughs> La seu filho. <laughs> All right. Great. Okay. Giselle. Okay. Um, this is considered one of the great romantic ballets as well. The highly dramatic Giselle was originally choreographed by Jean Coralie and Jules Perrault in 1841. It was then restaged in 1884 by Marius Petipa for the Imperial oh, Ballet. This guy had a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Ballet Blanc of the second act became a symbol of classical ballet. In this story, Count Albrecht, disguised as a peasant, flirts with a young fragile girl named Giselle. She falls in love with him and accepts to marry him, unaware that he is actually already engaged to Batilde, a noblewoman. <laughs> Uh, there's a fellow named Hilarion who is desperately in love with Giselle, but he suspects that Albrecht is an imposter and warns her. And when the weak Giselle finally discovers the truth, she loses her mind and dies of a broken heart. Oh my God. In the forest where she's buried, Hilarion encounters a group of willies, W-I-L-I-S. That's ghosts of maidens promised to be married, but jilted before their wedding. Oh my God. And as a form of revenge, they dance with Hilarion until he dies. Oh. <laughs> this this is good. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I mean, but like when this was written, like people knew all these things. You know, they knew all these like yeah, they knew these stories. Like and, oh yeah, yeah, he's gonna uh, he's found the he's gonna the ghosts of the maidens have died of a broken heart, and they're gonna dance him to death. Dance him to death. Um. So Albrecht comes by, and he's also trapped by the by the Willis. However, Giselle confronts the vengeful spirits by taking his place in their deadly dance. And as the sun rises, the Willies disappear, leaving Albrecht safe. So basically, she sacrifices herself to save the man she loves, even though he was like. A real jerk. Man, I'm seeing a lot of ladies just getting the shaft. Yeah. Speaking of ladies getting the shaft, Cinderella. Oh, yeah. Uh, based on Charles Perrault's uh, version of the story. So it was composed by Sergei Prokofiev between 1941 and 1944. And this is considered a comic ballet. It was first choreographed for the Bolshoi Ballet in 1945. So Frederick Ashton's Cinderella was the first full-length English classical ballet. Um, it's really the same old Cinderella story we know, but yeah. just set to set to dance sure. um and so traditionally two male dancers play the wicked stepsisters that's like the oh i see that's the comic part mm-hmm. yeah because drag um, is always funny <laughs> well in 1945 sure i mean sure. yeah yeah Bas- you know like shakespeare's time you know yeah i mean you know some like it hot was like an, an academy oh, yeah, award-winning movie yeah uh, so from cinderella again the music was by sergey prokofiev and it was re-choreographed by frederick ashton Coppelia, C-O-P-P-E-L-I-A. This is a sentimental comic ballet based on two stories by E.T.A. Hoffman um, called Der Sandman, which is the Sandman, and Die Puppe, <laughs> the doll. <laughs> Sorry. That was so percussive. Uh, German. Wow. It's a beautiful it's, language. Oh, stunning. <laughs> wow, I could really feel it. That sentimental comic. Kartoffelbuffen. <laughs> That means potato pancake. Um, so uh, it's based on, two, uh, you know, two stories, the Sandman and the doll. Okay. So Coppelia, ready? Okay. She's a life-size doll created by the Ugh. mad Dr. Coppelius who Ugh. leaves her sitting at a balcony. Like he made this doll. Ha ha. I love this doll. He made it, sat at a balcony. So this doll looked so human that a boy named Franz, he's mesmerized by her and he forgets that he's engaged to a lady named Swan Hilda. Okay. That kid is straight stupid. <laughs> Franz is a doom doom. I'm sorry. Well, he was engaged to Swan Hilda. Poor Swan forgot. Hilda. <laughs> Mesmerized by this doll. So yeah. Swan Hilda finds out that her fiance left her for a doll. <laughs> and so what she decides to do, she decides to impersonate the doll to show Franz his foolishness. Okay. 
Sure. You know, there's I, some come up in They didn't this have one, TV back then. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, the music by this one is by Leo Delib, and it is originally choreographed by Arthur Saint-Léon. Uh, another one we that we know, Don Quixote. Oh, sure. Um, it was based on the famous novel Don Quixote de la Mancha by um, Miel de Cervantes. It was originally performed in Moscow, Russia in 1869. So the story revolves around the protagonist, Don Quixote, on his noble quest for chivalry and slaying dangerous beasts. The music was composed by Ludwig Minkus and originally choreographed by Marius Petipa. I, uh, what? <laughs> He's all over this. I know his name. The stink of Petipa is all over it. <laughs> Um, one ballet I have never heard of. It's okay. called La Bayadere. B-A-Y-A-D-E-R-E. No. Um, this is set in exotic India. Ooh. It depicts a love triangle and incorporates ethereal beings. It was first performed by the Imperial Ballet in St. Petersburg in February 1877 and has been revived many times throughout its history. Um, the gist of the story is like Nikia, a temple dancer, which is also called a Bayadere, and Solor, a warrior, vow their love for eternity and drama ensues. Sure. Music was composed by Ludwig Minkus, originally choreographed by, by Marius Petipa. Petipa. Okay. Finally, The Rite of Spring. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay, sure. We're yeah. kind, of, kind of familiar with the story, maybe, right? I, okay. I, only, I think I only know the piece of music called The Rite of Spring. Okay. I don't know. I didn't know it was a ballet. So, The Rite of Spring uh, is a ballet, originally choreographed by Vaslav Nijinsky and composed by Igor Stravinsky. Oh, okay. Okay, who wrote The Rite of Spring and The Firebird and all these other things. Yeah. So um, the ballet itself, you're like, okay, Stravinsky. If you're familiar with him at all, it's very like bitonal. There's a lot of like yeah. discordant sounds. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not your grandma's, you know, ballet. classical music. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? So anyway, so this ballet depicts ritual sacrifice in pagan <laughs> Russia, or at least what Stravinsky and his collaborators imagined that pagan prehistoric Russia would be like. Oh my God. So when it was first performed at the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées on May 29, 1913, the avant-garde nature of the music and choreography caused what we'll call a sensation. <laughs> so the legend has it, and you probably have heard about this, the legend has it that the first night reaction was a riot. Okay, so many riots happened because of theater or art. Uh-huh. It's like, again, people didn't have TV, so they just... We're whipped into a frenzy so easily. so easily. So, I mean, I have heard about this like, the oh, yeah, you know, at the, when they performed the Rite of Spring in 1923, there was everybody was so shocked and appalled. There was a riot at the theater. So um, and I'm sure a lot of you guys out there have heard this before, too. But Linda Shaver Gleason, who is a fellow woman of Jeopardy, she wrote a really great post last year about this on her blog called Not Another Music History Cliche. Um, she Basically, there was no riot that night. Okay. Uh, people attending the show were like laughing and jeering at the story and some of like the very inelegant movements and like kind of the politics of like this these Russian composers staging a thing about pagan Russia like on oh, okay, stage yeah. in France. But the earliest accounts of that night don't mention any kind of physical fight or altercations, much less a riot. So this wording didn't even come about until reviews of later performances of, um, nearly a decade later in 1924. Oh. Um, so critics may have been more confused than outraged by the strangeness of the music and choreography and then the primitive costumes. Um, so this was like a big sensation. Like it only... You know, Stravinsky's performance only um, took place like six times or oh, something wow. like that. Okay. And then people were like, the Rite of Spring is so awful, it's right? It's so bad. So in 1987, the Draftery Ballet of Chicago recreated the original composition, which was thought to be lost. Um, and you can take a look at recordings of that online, which is really oh, interesting. Cool. So I watched a little bit of it today. And it's very like, 
you know how in the 70s and 80s in school teachers would be like and now everybody's gonna dress up like a native american yeah this is basically what the costumes look like and it's lots of stomping Stomping in groups, <laughs> stomping and jumping in groups around this stage. It's kind of like they're native peoples and they're like lots of like side to side movements and jumping up and down. It's very bizarre. And then set to like Stravinsky's music is very like, what the hell is happening to me right now? Like you thought you were going to the ballet to see like these beautiful ladies yeah. in tutus dancing on the tips of their toes. And sure. like it's a fairy tale story. And this was like a very weird avant-garde thing for the time so in not so much a riot but more like people were like boo this is bad I <laughs> they were like this. i'm kind of confused <laughs> yeah. we paid a lot of money to come here <laughs> are you guys gonna put something else on after yeah. this it was more like that is this all of it <laughs> is this it is this it you know how much money i paid for this yeah exactly so so they were really going for like not so much pagan but like definitely like prehistoric it was like primitive prehistoric pagan Russia is oh kind God. of like what it, the theme was like, you know, oh, yeah. it's in how we're emerging out of the soup. Yeah. Yeah. It was very weird. But so I recommend taking a look at online. At the I'll definitely check that. that out. Okay. Some final somewhat ballet related tidbits. Sure. Okay. The band Spandau Ballet. Oh, yeah. Uh, so they're an English new wave or new romantic band. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> Formed in Islington, in London in 1979. So they're probably best known for their songs True yes. and Gold. So True is like in every movie about the 1980s now. Ba, 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 ba. True. So yeah, that's Spandau Ballet. Yeah. Um, so the band's name, though, it was originally, they were originally called The Cut. Um, but friend and writer Robert Elms suggested that they change their name to Spandau Ballet after seeing the phrase written on the wall of a nightclub in Berlin. So what does Spandau Ballet mean, Lauren? You know what? I don't know. Okay. Uh, well, there are two possibilities. And one of these is, I mean, they're, either of them are probably equally likely. Um, so first... The phrase references the 1918 German pilots who flew with two Spandau machine guns in place on the aircraft, firing 1,200 bullets per minute at the soldiers below. And the guns were said to make the enemy dance when <gasps> fired at them from above, hence the term ballet. Oh my God, that's So awful. basically, like you're getting, like, you know, in an action movie, like you're getting shot so much that you're kind of. That's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. It's violent. Also morbid, it may refer to the jerky movements of Nazi war prisoners hanged at the Spandau oh prison. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And the guys were just like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds a good great. Name. I love it. Sounds great. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> but let's end this on a brighter okay, note. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Edgar Degas. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Born Hilaire Germain Edgar Degas. He was alive from 1834 to 1917. He was a French artist famous for his paintings, sculptures, prints, and drawings. Um, his mother was originally from New Orleans. Oh, hey. Oh, interesting. Um, Degas is especially identified with the subject of dance. More than half of his known works depict dancers. Um, Degas is, re- is called one of the founders of Impressionism, but he rejected the term, preferring to be called a realist. Yes. Uh, Degas skillfully depicted movement as seen in his works about dancers, jockeys, and racers, and female nudes. During his life, public reception of Degas's works uh, ranged from from admiration to contempt. Um, his La Petite Danseuse de 14 Ans, or Little Dancer of 14 Years, which he displayed at the Sixth Impressionist Exhibition in 1881, was probably his most controversial piece. It was It's just like a sculpture of a girl, little girl ballet dancer. Yeah. Um, some critics said that it had appalling ugliness. 
woof. Yeah. Um, he was very good friends with American painter Mary Cassatt. Mm-hmm. Um, he did like a lot of wax sculptures and pastels and a lot of his wax sculptures were later cast um, posthumously. So yeah. that's why you'll see like every museum in America has a Degas because they cast all of his stuff after he died. Yeah. Uh, the MFA has one of his uh, cast dancers. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why they thought it was so gross is because he outfitted her. It's uh, her tutu is uh-huh. actually fabric. Right. Um, and I think people saw that and they were like, ew, that's real. Why does your sculpture have it's like fabric ew. on it? It's like her skin and her clothes. Oh. Um, and it's, she's not pretty. Her like face she, is not, like her eyes are, like her head is like tilted back. Mm-hmm. And her hands are like behind her back. And yeah. Her face is kind of like, yeah, she's kind Crunched. of wincing a little. Yeah. And she's a little lumpy. Um, I mean, on purpose. It's yeah. not that he wasn't good at it. Uh, but I think people really were grossed out by it because she wasn't smooth. Beautiful. And, yeah, mm-hmm. she wasn't smooth and feminine. She was like a lumpy, like a little girl would mm. be. Because um, not every little girl is smooth and feminine. No. Some, like yours truly was, had a little bit of pot. A little bit of belly pot. A little bit of... A little bit of baby fat. And you know know? what? That's okay. That just means you're healthy. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, yeah, I just wanted to touch on Degas a bit. I'm sure that, like, at some point you'll, you know, lump him in with your... (sighs) I know, probably. I know that you have feelings about him, too. I have a lot of feelings about Degas, but... I mean, we'll set those yeah. aside for now. Basically, if it's an impressionist-looking painting of a ballet dancer or a jockey, it's Degas. It's 100% mm-hmm. Degas. Yeah, you don't have to worry. <laughs> okay. And that's all. That's all your ballet. That was great. I'm going to take, ba- take a bow. Yes. Ooh, so elegant. And she's doing it on point, everyone. Incredible. Without wires. Without wires. Mm-hmm. No wires here. That was excellent. Thank you. Sure. So our quiz is Dance Like Nobody's Watching. This is a quiz on trite inspirational quotations and movie flops. Oh, yeah. And the quotation questions here are all true and false. Okay. Question one. True or false? Audrey Hepburn said, quote, I believe in pink. I believe that loving is the best calorie burner. I believe in kissing. I believe that happy girls are the prettiest girls. And I believe in miracles. Question two. This 2002 sci-fi comedy film is considered to be one of the biggest box office bombs in the history of cinema, starring Eddie Murphy as an ex-convict who buys a nightclub on the moon in the year 2080. Which film was described as being neither adventurous nor funny, earning back only 7% of its total production budget? Question three. True or false? Marilyn Monroe said, quote, if you can't handle me at my worst, then you sure as hell don't deserve me at my best. Question four. With Friday Night Lights, Hunk Taylor Kitsch as the title character, Disney's John Carter was one of the most expensive films ever made. However, this interplanetary adventure of John Carter and his attempts to mediate civil unrest amongst the warring kingdoms of Barsoom lost more than $200 million for Disney in 2012. Dig deep and tell me, on which sci-fi author's books was this movie based? Question five. True or false? Martin Luther King Jr. said, quote, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Question six. Somehow, John Carter wasn't actually the worst financial loss for a Disney movie. Rather, it was this other 2011 film set on a planet in our solar system in which a kid's mother is kidnapped and taken to another planet to do chores and teach robots how to be more maternal. What's the name of this film, which sounds a lot like a bad want ad? Question seven. True or false? 
Mohandas Gandhi said, quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. Question eight. Independent motion picture production company Kiralco Pictures produced mega blockbuster hits like Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Basic Instinct, and the first three films of the Rainbow series. However, the studio slowly began leaking money in the early 1990s, but attempted a comeback with which big-budget swashbuckler in 1995? Unfortunately, this flick caused Kiralco to walk the plank since, adjusted for inflation, it lost $147 million. Question 9. True or false? Eleanor Roosevelt said, quote, women are like tea bags. You never know how strong they are until you put them in hot water. And finally, question 10. Based on a series by Philip Reeve, this 2018 post-apocalyptic adventure film was meant to spawn a movie franchise, but instead fell flat. Very, very flat. Though The Guardian described it as a steam- steampunk Star Wars with a bit of low-octane Gilliam and Gaiman on the side, what film about mobile cities after the 60-minute war definitely needed an intensive tune-up before it hit theaters and became the biggest box office bomb of 2018? I'll give you about a minute to think, and then we'll be back with your answers. hated all of those quotes <laughs> i hate them so much you see them on so many tote bags and t-shirts mm-hmm. and tumblers tumblers yes mm-hmm. and those um those canvas art pieces that you see in marshalls mm-hmm. one of my but but honestly probably my least favorite thing about them is a lot of the times those people didn't say those quotes yeah exactly you know yeah, it's like you know, in um, the beginning of Talladega Nights, this is one of my I love. That's my favorite Will Ferrell movie, Talladega Nights. The big quote at the beginning is like, "America's all about speed, hot, nasty speed." <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt. I'm like, yep. <laughs> you know, she yep. said that. Yeah, right? she defo did. Yep. All right, question one: True or false? Audrey Hepburn said, I believe in pink. I believe that loving is the best calorie burner. I believe in kissing. I believe that happy girls are the prettiest girls, and I believe in miracles. I'm going to say false on that one. False. Yeah. This passage and slight variants of it have been widely attributed to Audrey Hepburn long after her death. For example, in Glamour Magazine's March 2012 issue and all over Pinterest boards. Uh, But no evidence of his existence has been found during Hepburn's lifetime attributed to Hepburn or anyone else. And it has not been found in print before 2008. Please stop. Please Attributing quotes it was people it was probably who are dead made by some marketing company mm-hmm. or something yeah i mean i was very skeptical like i believe that loving is the best calorie burner no, no. audrey hepburn she never did, thought about that in no, her life she did not give a shit no. about calories no. no number two 
Question two. This 2002 sci-fi comedy film is considered to be one of the biggest box office bombs in the history of cinema, starring Eddie Murphy as an ex-convict who buys a nightclub on the moon in the year 2080, which film was described as being neither adventurous nor funny, earning back only 7% of its total production budget. Okay. Is it called The Adventures of Pluto Nash? It is. Yes. It is. Yeah. So its production budget was $100 million, and it grossed only $7.1 million. Ugh. It was a bad, bad movie. movie. Question three. True or false, Marilyn Monroe said, if you can't handle me at my worst, then you sure as hell don't deserve me at my best. I'm going to say false on that one. False. Yes. This has been attributed to Monroe in various self-help books and on social media, but this quotation is of unknown origin and date. Yeah. Again, marketing company from like 2004. Question four. With Friday Night Lights hunk Taylor Kitsch as the title character, Disney's John Carter was one of the most expensive films ever made. However, this interplanetary adventure of John Carter and his attempts to mediate civil unrest amongst the warring kingdoms of Barsoom lost more than $200 million for Disney in 2012. Dig deep and tell me, on which sci-fi author's books was this movie based? <sighs> so I did know this at one point. Okay. Because... To help me remember one of our board members at my last museum, whose name was John Carver, in my head, I called him John Carver of Mars, which is the name of the first John Carter movie, uh -huh. John Carter of Mars, or John uh -huh. Carter book. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, his last name is like... Dig deep. With, does it start with an R? Dig deep. Uh, dig. Dig. Uh, dig. Sure. Dig. B Digby <laughs> is it uh I'm gonna be so mad when you tell me Ditch Ditcherson um I don't know who is it Edgar Rice, Rice Burroughs. Burroughs damn it Edgar Rice Burroughs Shit. I knew that too. So this was based on A Princess of Mars the first book in the Barsoom series of novels mm -hmm. the novels apparently are very good the movie is terrible yeah yeah poor Taylor Kitsch what a hunk. Oh, such a hunk. Question five. True or false? Martin Luther King Jr. said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. I'm going to say false. <gasps> True. <gasps> no. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm so surprised So by delivered that. on Christmas Day, 1957, the speech is known as Loving Your Enemies. Delivered at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama on December 25th, 1957. He actually wrote it while he was in jail for committing nonviolent civil disobedience during the Montgomery bus boycott and in this sermon king discusses jesus um jesus's command to love your enemies and answers the question how one can love their own enemies huh hmm i thought this was going to be like all the quotes are false in this in this particular quiz i see i think at this point you would i knew I you would, would think i would that. figure it out yeah you would think mm -hmm. that yeah yeah you're mm -hmm. right you're right all right question six Somehow, John Carter wasn't actually the worst financial loss for a Disney movie. Rather, it was this other 2011 film set on a planet in our solar system in which a kid's mother is kidnapped and taken to another planet to do chores and teach robots how to be more maternal. What's the name of this film, which sounds a lot like a bad want ad? Uh, I'm sorry. That's uh, Mars Needs Moms. <laughs> yeah, that's Mars Needs Moms. Yeah. What a great name for a movie. <laughs> I think it's the name of the movie that made people not go see it. That was definitely like their, that was like, let's just call it for the, I don't know, Marcy's Moms. We'll figure yeah. out a better title yeah. when we're done shooting. And then shooting. they were like, oh shit, next week? <laughs> uh, uh, well, 
all of our material says the scripts and Laura Mipsum Delorum, Mars Needs Moms. Exactly. So yeah, this is for Disney. Um, their production budget was $150 million and they lost $100 million in this movie. Oh, mama. Yep. That's tough. Set number seven. True or false? Mohandas Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. All right. Well, I'm going to say true. False. Ah! There is no evidence he actually said those exact words. In 2011, the New York Times pointed out that the quote is conveniently short enough to fit on a bumper sticker. (laughs) But it's actually paraphrasing something Gandhi might have said, which was, quote, we but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are found to be in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change toward him. That is the divine mystery supreme. A wonderful thing it is and the source of our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do. This profound statement was from an article he wrote for the Indian Opinion called Accidents, colon, Snakebite, which was all about dealing with, well, snake bites and I guess existentialism Are you published serious? in September 1913. What? So he's like, do to do, when you get bit by a snake, here's the things you should do. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. <laughs> but first, suck out the poison with your own lips. Wow. Yeah. Such a beautiful and nuanced statement that we that we Americans really distilled into garbage. Right. Yeah. So he did he never said that. No. That exact phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Question eight. Independent motion picture production company Coralco Pictures produced mega blockbuster hits like Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Basic Instinct, and the first three films of the Rainbow series. However, the studio slowly began leaking money in the early 1990s, but attempted a comeback with which big-budget swashbuckler in 1995? Unfortunately, this flick caused Coralco to walk the plank. Since adjusted for inflation, it lost $147 million. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Is it Waterworld? Not Waterworld. Oh, wow. Okay. Is it... What is it? It is Cutthroat Island. Oh, I had never heard of that before in my life. So this is a 1995 movie, Cutthroat Island. It starred Gina Davis and Matthew Modine. Matthew Uh, Modine? Yeah. It was supposed to star like Michael Douglas, but then like whatever. He he thought better of it. Yeah. So the failure of Cutthroat Island is also credited with significantly reducing the bankability and Hollywood production of pirate-themed films, which <laughs> were covered only with the production of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl in 2003. Yeah, hell yeah. So it was like, Hook came out in like, you know, the early 90s. Great movie. Right. People love pirate shit, right? Yeah. And then they tried to make Cutthroat Island, and I tried to read a summary of this, and it was awful was it, it was just so bad it was like gina davis she's a pirate right and her she's the daughter of a pirate and this pirate kills another pirate and she's trying to put this medallion together so that she can go to cutthroat island and find <laughs> the buried treasure but everybody around them is like the worst of the worst it's, it sounds like it sounds it like a nickelodeon game show it was supposed to be funny and adventure but oh, it boy. was not funny and awful to look at yeah and Carol Co. Productions lost $147 million That's on this. So much and it's basically considered like the one of the worst flops of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could see Waterworld that. actually made a lot of money. Oh, did it? Okay. Yeah. Like it wasn't good, but it made a lot of money. I don't think I ever saw it. I mean, I get the premise like, oh, the world's covered in water. Like, right? I mean, it's Kevin in the name. Cos- it's right in the name, Kevin guys. Kevin Costner's got to find gas or something. I'm <laughs> thinking I might be mixing it up with Mad Max. <laughs> Mad Max, but I'm water. Like, I think that's what it was. <laughs> Question nine. 
True or false? Eleanor Roosevelt said, quote, women are like tea bags. You never know how strong they are until you put them in hot water. I'm going to say false on that, bitch. Was it true? False. Yes. Yeah. She was too smart of a lady to be reduced to such trite. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so this has been attributed to her without any original source in her writings. No one has ever been able to find the quote in any of her personal or published papers. Sorry. A very similar remark was attributed to Nancy Reagan in a March 29th, 1891 article. 1891. She wasn't alive then. No. 1981 article in The Observer, which she said, a woman is like a teabag. Only in hot water do you realize how strong she is. I could see Nancy Reagan saying Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Okay. Nancy Reagan for sure. Yeah. Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt. Roosevelt. No. To learn more about Eleanor Roosevelt, you can go back to my episode called Mrs. Roosevelt, which is all about her. It's very good. And finally, question 10. Based on a series by Philip Reeve, this 2018 post-apocalyptic adventure film was meant to spawn a movie franchise, but instead fell flat. Very, very flat. Though The Guardian described it as steampunk Star Wars with a bit of low-octane Gilliam and Gaiman on the side, what film about mobile cities after the 60-minute war definitely needed an intensive tune-up before it hit theaters and became the biggest box office bomb of 2018? So I keep seeing ads for this on my Roku channel where they're mm-hmm. like, press the center button now to see. It's like, it's like movable cities or like machine cities or like cities that walk. The cities that walk. The war of the cities that trotted about. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> the war of the cities that we should... Right, we're gonna write that. that. The we're war gonna, of the cities that trotted about copyright misinformation. We're gonna write a treatment. It's called. Uh, it's gonna make me crazy. Um, it's like uh, they're like mobile cities <laughs> that fight each other, and it sounds like a cool idea to a certain extent. And they're called walkie walkie cities. Cities are going for a walkie. <laughs> you want to go for a walkie? Hey guys, come on, let's go, go for a walkie. What's it called? What's it called? Mortal Engines. Mortal Engines? Damn it! This is why when we go on other podcasts, they have to bleep us out so much. Because <laughs> we do a lot of like swearing after screaming. after not getting an answer right. <sighs> Mortal anyway. Engines. Damn it. I see it like literally every day when I go to turn on my forensic files before bedtime. They're like, do you want to watch Mortal Engines? I'm like, no, thank no, you. Thank I, you. I would rather see a I dead body. I would rather see cities want to go for walking. <laughs> Um, so for Mortal Engines in 2018, the production budget was a hundred million dollars. Oh my god! The loss, a hundred seventy-five million dollars. Are you serious? They so went into nobody's the red? gonna get to make any more movies about <laughs> cities that walk around and munch up other cities. Was this based on a book or was yeah, this based just... on a series by Philip Reeve? Oh, okay, that's too bad because I imagine that's it's not an his interesting... fault. No, it's not his fault. I bet they're good books. Yeah, I mean they were good enough to someone to be like, yeah, let's make a let's movie do this. about this. Yep. Well, there you go. Great job, Lauren. Thanks. I uh, I pulled a couple of those out of nowhere. So Great. thanks a lot. That was very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, Julia. And um, if you would like to uh, email us and tell us about your experience with ballet or uh, about the worst movie that you've ever seen, that's fine too. Uh, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod on Twitter. Uh, you can visit our webs- website, www.misinfopod.com, or you can visit us on Facebook, Misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. Uh, you can listen to us on our website, 
And you can listen to us pretty much wherever you get podcasts these days. Please rate for review and subscribe. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Yeah. We appreciate it. It's really fun when we hear from people that are like, yeah, my friend was finally like, you should listen to this podcast. And then they listen to it and they're like, why haven't I been listening to this podcast? And we're like, I know, right? I know. We are very good. I'm just saying. I might be biased, but it's true. You might have drank a bottle of wine tonight, but yeah, yeah we're, we're feeling ourselves. We're doing great. My dad now, he just recently texted me and was like, have you guys been drinking? It sounds like you guys are having a good time. I'm like, no, we had zero wine that night right. when we were recording. I was like, we're just high on life and Seltzy. That's it. <laughs> That's what I'm calling it now. It's my Seltzy. A, a Seltzo man, if a, you will. A Seltzo man. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, yeah, that's it from us, y'all. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.